The Warren Report as History. Hi, I'm Rick Ryman, host of Audibly Speaking, a show on the stories behind the stories of our time. By sounding out on these stories, we give voice to them and hear them for the first time. From the news of the day to history and literature, from audiobooks to leaders on the stump, we examine the backstories of our time, audibly speaking. In our last program of Puzzle Pieces, I said that today we would look at how historians have answered the critical questions of the JFK assassination. I also said that the first historians were the staff members of the Warren Commission, who really did all the investigating in that case. Although they were Ivy League lawyers, they were really acting like historians, trying to weigh the evidence judiciously. So we will start with the Warren Commission. Like all people, the staff of the Warren Commission, as is true of all historians, made mistakes. These mistakes were increased because the commission was on a too tight deadline, pressured as it was to get its job done before the presidential election of 1964. This was an artificial deadline, and the credibility of the commission was to pay the price. These lawyers labored hard to discover the truth. Most were very young, in their early 30s. One of them, Bert Griffin, said that if they could have discovered a conspiracy, they would all have been heroes, their future careers made. If we look at the answers they gave to the key questions, you have to remember that it could not be known for sure which of those answers were absolutely correct and which were provisionally correct, meaning possibly wrong, pending further investigation. A nine-month investigation automatically meant that most of the Commission's conclusions were only provisionally convincing, meaning that more time would possibly lead to new evidence and different conclusions. Therefore, the Warren Commission's conclusions that we now know they got right did not have that level of credibility at the time because the conclusions were fresh and did not have the benefit of standing up to reinvestigations after reinvestigations, which would, over the next 60 years, turn their conclusions into something they could not be in 1964, namely certainties. Some of the Commission's mistakes were more immediately apparent, as we will see. But it is, but it is true with its mistakes that these two would become more numerous as time passed, and it became more apparent how many secrets were withheld from the Commission by the CIA and FBI. The Commission can be blamed in part for not prying these secrets from the FBI and CIA, though of course it's hard to insist on the release of information that you do not even know exists. Still, the Warren Commission trusted the FBI and CIA too much it seems safe to say. So let's begin with the mistakes, since these contributed to the Commission's originally poor reputation. What I mean by this is that from 1965 to at least 1975, most of the focus was on what critics said were the Commission's fatal errors. Don't forget, though, that immediately after the release of the report in September 1964, 
just about every mainstream media outlet supported the conclusions of the Warren Commission with gushing enthusiasm, as did the American people, an overwhelming majority of whom, polls disclosed, supported those conclusions as well in the immediate aftermath of the report's publication. Clearly, there was a desire for closure that had built up like a pressure cooker since the four dark days of 1963. But closure was not to be, as doubts arose starting in 1965 and increasingly thereafter. Let's start then by listing out the errors, omissions, and mistakes of the Commission that contributed to this backlash. But what you need to do to act as an historian in 2023 rather than as an observer in 1965 is to realize that following this listing of mistakes, we are going to set against them the strengths of the Commission's investigation much of which would only be demonstrated with the perspective of time and with the perspective of reinvestigations later that proved that the Commission's errors were less in the area of its conclusions, which were, after all, the most important products of the Commission, than in the area of its methods. It turns out, to get ahead of ourselves, that the Warren Commission got most of its conclusions right partly because it did many things right, and in spite of the fact that it did quite a few things wrong. So here are its mistakes. First, I've already mentioned the arbitrary timeline that it was given to complete its work, a six to nine month time frame set entirely because of political considerations. The commission's staff had to work hard to get the full nine months which was still too short a period in which to resolve all questions. Second, the Warren Commission was too trusting of the FBI and the CIA. But let's examine this factor carefully, as we must do to understand it fairly. The Warren Commission did not know what it did not know. The FBI and CIA were legally obligated to disclose all it knew about Oswald, in the run-up to the assassination. Alan Dulles, former head of the CIA, knew the CIA's secrets and was a member of the commission. As for the FBI, it was the most resource-rich and nationally extensive investigative body in the United States and, for that matter, in the world. The commission did not have the money to set up a parallel investigative organization that would do what the FBI could do in order to guarantee independence and control. It would take congressional funding that the Warren Commission never had, and three to five times as long to duplicate these efforts, time which, in the real world of politics in 1963 and 1964, the Commission did not have to establish an investigative arm as extensive as that of the FBI. It simply was not realistic to expect such a thing to happen, especially when one considers the esteem in which the American people at that time held for the FBI. The Commission did not trust the FBI, however. That is a fact. 
Lee Rankin, the committee's lead counsel, had it out with J. Edgar Hoover early in the investigation, informed Hoover that his less-than-grudging cooperation was completely unsatisfactory. The FBI maintained that its own rushed investigation from November 1963 through January 1964 was excellent, and it resented the Commission's effort to question its findings. Whether the Commission performed its own investigations, which it did when it had the resources to do so, or when the FBI was asked to follow some new trail. But the FBI did do the work it was asked to do, however grudgingly. And the Commission did filter the FBI's new findings with a highly critical and skeptical eye. When the FBI knew something that the Warren Commission did not know, something that tarnished the reputation of the FBI, the Bureau simply withheld that information from the Commission. There were even FBI secrets that Hoover himself did not know about. And of course, the agency did not release these secrets to the Warren Commission either. As we look at these, ask yourself two things. First, how could the Warren Commission pry these secrets loose from the FBI, especially when some of them even Hoover did not know about? Second, since these secrets are no longer secrets, have the decades that have passed in which we have finally had the time, opportunity to investigate those secrets were revealed in the interim decades. Have they been revealed to be smoking guns or blind alleys of no relevance to the question of whether a conspiracy existed or did not exist in the assassination? As we will see, it is evident from the perspective of time that the latter is the case. Here are the FBI's secrets. First, the FBI knew that Oswald visited Mexico City between September 26th and October 3rd, 1963, seeking a visa to go to Cuba. The FBI knew this in October 1963 because the CIA told it so. The CIA shared this information with the FBI in October, but neither the CIA nor the FBI at first disclosed this knowledge of the FBI's to the Warren Commission. Hoover kept these secret as long as he could because it made the FBI seem culpable by its incompetence in the assassination. In a word, the FBI was trying to cover its fanny, as would the CIA, as we will soon see. Second, the FBI had interviewed Oswald twice in 1962 and had tried to track Oswald down three times in 1963. But in the three instances in 1963, FBI agent James Hosty was unable to catch Oswald at a residence where he was at. In March 1963, Oswald moved from Elsbeth Street in Oak Cliff to Neely Street a week before Hostie showed up at Elsbeth Street and was told by the landlady that Oswald had moved. The landlady told Hostie that Oswald was only a couple of blocks away on Neely Street, but she also told Hostie that the Oswald's constant fighting had triggered the move. 
Hosty decided to let their marital tensions cool before he tried to make contact with Oswald. By the time Hosty tried again in May, the Oswalds had left Dallas altogether, and Hosty lost track of them. Hosty next learned about Oswald when the CIA informed the FBI, October 1963, of Oswald's trip to Mexico City. Hosty duly left a note at Ruth Payne's home in late October, and when Oswald found out, he ordered Marina to jot down Hosty's name and license plate if he came back. Hosty did turn up at Ruth Payne's home again during the first week of November 1963, less than three weeks before the assassination. This time, Ruth Payne was home and woke Marina up from a nap to tell her that the FBI wanted to speak to her and Oswald. Oswald was using an alias, O.H. Lee, to rent an apartment on Beckley Street in Oak Cliff, far from Irving where Ruth Payne and Marina were staying, and neither Ruth nor Marina knew exactly where Oswald was living. Oswald had given Marina his telephone number to the rooming house, but Marina did not disclose this to Hosty. While Hosty was speaking to Ruth, Marina left the house and jotted down Hosty's license plate as directed by Oswald. She gave Oswald this information, including Hosty's name, when Oswald visited the next weekend. Oswald was furious that the FBI had made two visits in two weeks and probably realized that the agency had learned of his trip to Mexico City. Oswald always responded to fear by trying to take the offensive. The following week, he took a note to the FBI office in downtown Dallas, a few blocks from the book depository, and left it with Hostie's secretary when he learned that Hostie was out. The note clearly contained some sort of threat either veiled or direct. We don't know for sure which, because Hosty destroyed this note immediately after the assassination. Hosty and the FBI had once again fumbled the Oswald case, only this time more egregiously than ever. When Hosty got back to the office after Oswald's visit to him, his secretary handed him the note, saying only that some nut had left it for him. Hosty evidently had many nuts on his case list, so he pigeonholed the note in his inbox and did nothing about it before the assassination. He didn't even read the note, if Hosty's account can be believed. We cannot be sure that Hosty did not read it before the assassination, only that he claimed that he did not. He said that after the assassination, when he found out that his case was the alleged assassin of President Kennedy, he read the note and discovered that it only contained a vague threat that Hosty should never again speak to Marina or threaten his wife, but speak only to him or else. This story made Hosty seem slightly less incompetent since the message was so vague and Hosty simply lost sight of a message from a nameless nut but it was still an egregious oversight. On November 22nd, 
Hostie rushed to the Dallas police station upon learning that Oswald was the suspect. In a state of guilt and anguish, he confessed to a member of the Dallas police force that he had been tracking Oswald, but never appreciated the danger that he posed. Hostie also showed up in the room where Oswald was interrogated. When Oswald learned who the FBI man's name was, he became enraged and verbally lashed out at Hostie. When Hostie returned to his office, his superior, Gordon Shanklin, discovered that Hostie had been tracking Oswald, that Oswald had been seeking a visa in Mexico City to visit Cuba, and that Oswald had left a threatening note just days earlier, one that Hostie had done nothing about. There the matter stood until Sunday, November 24th, when Oswald was murdered by Jack Ruby. Shanklin then observed that there could be no trial of Oswald, and that therefore Hostie should destroy the note. Hostie did as directed, flushing it down a toilet. In the 1970s, Hostie gave his version of the story to the House Select Committee on Assassinations. But his secretary also testified and gave a much more detailed and damning of Hostie description of the note. She said that Oswald threatened to blow up the FBI office in Dallas if he was not left alone. Hoover knew nothing of the note, but its discovery in the 1970s sullied the reputation of both the Warren Commission and the FBI in the 1970s. The CIA did share information on Oswald's trip to Mexico City, but it held back any and all information that it believed the commission did not need, since the CIA had secrets of much vaster scope that it wanted to conceal and felt that those secrets, if they got out, would sully their own reputation and expose their methods to no good purpose, since the commission already had plenty of evidence to ice the case against Oswald as Kennedy's assassin. In other words, many secrets held back by the CIA would only make Oswald's guilt clearer if revealed, but would also sully the CIA's reputation and expose its own dirty laundry with no evident advantage to anyone. But of course, the CIA was wrong. Exposure of all the CIA's secrets would make Oswald's involvement in the assassination as a lone assassin all the clearer and more logical, the lack of which evidence was the main reason why people did not believe the Warren report. In order to protect itself, the CIA's silence kept the Warren report from being as damning a document against Oswald as it would otherwise have been. The CIA sacrificed the reputation of the Warren Commission to its own narrow interests. Consider these facts and how helpful they would have been in shoring up the case against Oswald as the lone assassin in the assassination, if the Warren Commission had been informed of that. First, the CIA had operated a secret program called Operation Mongoose to assassinate Castro with poison pens, exploding cigars, 
and infiltrated assassins. This had been going on in 1961 and 1962. Dulles knew about this and didn't tell his fellow commissioners, nor did the CIA's point man with the commission, Richard Helms. Second, in 1963, there were parallel tracks on Cuba in the Kennedy administration, one trying to seek rapprochement with Castro, the other continuing to promote an internal coup against Castro, with or without an assassination. The CIA had overthrown or assassinated foreign leaders in the Middle East and Latin America in the 1950s during the Eisenhower administration. None of this was known to the public, nor shared with the Warren Commission. It is far from clear that Americans would have been either shocked or opposed to these efforts had they known about them. After all, communists were considered existential threats to the nation in the hyper-heated atmosphere of those faraway Cold War times. And indeed, there were periodic, not very infrequent, reports in the newspapers in 1963 that the Kennedy administration was trying to assassinate Castro. Some of this was reporting of Castro's speeches accusing JFK of plotting to murder him. Many right-wingers were urging Kennedy to do just that. Covert violence against Cuba was in the air in 1963 and in the media. Whether a reader was focused on the twist dance craze or this news about Cuba was purely a question of their degree of interest in politics. The news was available for anyone to see, anyone, that is, with an interest in it. One man with an interest in it was Lee Harvey Oswald. Oswald was also an avid newspaper reader. There were constant attacks on Kennedy in The Militant, which Oswald subscribed to, urging its readers to be aware of JFK's efforts to decapitate the Castro regime. Oswald later said that news outlets like The Militant were somewhat vague in their advice to readers like him, but that you could read between the lines and know what they wanted you to do. In January, Oswald could read in the militant of JFK's Orange Bowl speech in Miami, in which he promised that the anti-Castro Cubans would be able to plant their flag in a free Cuba in the next few years. On April 10, 1963, exactly 60 years ago today, as I speak these words, Oswald carried his rifle to the Dallas home of General Edwin A. Walker, retired, a leader of right-wing anti-communism and a rabid critic of Cuba, and fired a single shot at Walker as he worked on his taxes. The shot was diverted by the window sash and just missed killing Walker. Thirteen days later, Oswald was scanning the Dallas Morning News on April 23rd undoubtedly ran across a page 12 article in which Castro was quoted as charging JFK with assassination plots against he and other Cuban leaders. Oswald grew incensed that Sunday morning and announced that he was going out to have a look at former Vice President Nixon, whom Oswald said was in town. Marina tried to stop him. I know how you look, she said. Nixon was not in town, and Oswald evidently had someone else in mind. We will never know if it was Walker or someone or something else. 
A few days later, Oswald and Marina moved to New Orleans, in part to beat the heat of the police investigation in Dallas. During the second week in September, the New Orleans Times-Picayune published an article quoting Castro to the effect that Kennedy was again plotting his murder, and that if U.S. leaders persisted in this effort, they themselves will not be safe, said Castro. Was Oswald reading between the lines when he read this, as he almost certainly did? Did he take this as a directive to turn the tables on Kennedy and make Castro's threat a reality? After all, Oswald was already trying to compile a resume of sorts in the form of infiltration of anti-Castro groups and pro-Cuban leaflet distribution, seeing himself as a loyal foot soldier of Castro's. The point is that Oswald would almost certainly have seen the assassination of anti-Castro American leaders as efforts that were fair game in a war that involved deadly force on both sides. Warren Commission staffers were unaware of the April 23 Dallas Morning News article, but they were very much aware of the September article in the New Orleans Times-Picayune. Wesley Liebler tried to convince Lee Rankin to include the article and its implications as a possible motive to explaining Oswald's assassination of JFK. But Rankin refused, saying that there was no conclusive hard evidence that Oswald saw the article. Yet, there was also no conclusive hard evidence that Oswald saw the right-wing advertisement in the Dallas Morning News on November 22nd that accused Kennedy of coddling communists and included a wanted-style picture of Kennedy in the threatening advertisement. Rankin agreed to publish this in the report. There was more reason to publish the New Orleans Times-Picayune article, since Oswald had plenty of time to read it, while he had already retrieved his rifle from Ruth Payne's home on the morning of November 22nd, when the Dallas Morning News hit the stands, and the die was already cast on his plan. What these facts show is that the Warren Commission did not want to publish anything that seemed to suggest that the Kennedy administration had unwittingly contributed to its own demise, no matter how true that may have been. By going after Castro with murder plots of its own, the Kennedy administration may have energized and motivated lone nuts on the left to go after it. Daniel Shore, the journalist, opined about this time that an arrow shot in the air by the Kennedy administration and aimed at Castro had fallen back to earth and hit the President of the United States. The Warren Commission did not want to blame JFK in the slightest for some of the conditions that caused his own death. But by refusing to look at the evidence before their own eyes, the commission and its resulting report left a huge hole where a compelling motive might have been clear to see by all, strengthening the case against Oswald's guilt. The commission largely punted on the question of Oswald's motive. It speculated that he wanted to be famous, and that he was a mentally unstable malcontent. Undoubtedly, he was. But by putting up a mirror in front of the faces of the American people and suggesting that the hyperheated Cold War that Americans demanded from their leaders 
might have motivated such a malcontent even further, the commission would have strengthened the case against Oswald while chastening the government and the American people in the process. We will never know if such a motive would have strengthened the Warren Commission's reputation, but it would surely have added much that was true and undeniable to the evidence against Oswald and would have been all to the good in avoiding doubt and incrimination against the investigation in the years and decades to come. To conclude this episode on the Warren Commission's mistakes, we need to look at three more examples of the Warren Commission's weaknesses, perhaps less important, but real enough. First, Chief Justice Earl Warren and Richard Russell, the Georgia senator, did not want to serve on the commission. They had reason to want to wrap up the investigation as quickly as possible. Warren looked at the autopsy photographs, but was so afraid that they would somehow be published or get out that he refused to let others on the commission look at them or write about them directly. This was a major error of omission. For too long, there have been unnecessary questions about the autopsy photos because Warren withheld them. Warren was heartbroken about Kennedy's assassination, viewing him as almost a son and wanted to get the whole thing over with. He was too sensitive about the feelings of the Kennedy family. He made sure that Jacqueline Kennedy, a central witness to the assassination, was interviewed for only about 10 minutes regarding her recollections. Robert Kennedy, who knew about Operation Mongoose and blamed himself for the assassination, was allowed to testify with a single letter explaining that he had nothing new to offer the commission since he had not been in Dallas. Russell, meanwhile, was too busy fighting LBJ's civil rights legislation, a fight that Russell lost, to attend many of the commission's hearings. Yet Russell complained that the commission's single-bullet theory made no sense to him, even though he missed most of the demonstrations and hearings where this was discussed. Russell signed the report, but later said he did not believe the single-bullet theory nor Oswald's lone guilt. Tape recordings show that LBJ, who regarded himself as a protege of Russell's, spoke to Russell on the phone after the report was released. When Russell told LBJ that he didn't believe the single bullet theory, LBJ responded like a Southern gentleman bucking another one up, I don't believe it either. This was typical Southern balderdash, though, because how could either man know anything at all about the matter? Neither LBJ nor Russell had attended the actual sessions, nor had either spent any time at all seriously considering the matter. It was just a feeling that both men had. Neither Russell nor LBJ, with his tight timeline imposed on the commission, did the commission any favors, either in retrospect or when it would have done some good during the time the Warren Commission was in session. Howard Willens, who was the Justice Department's point man on the commission, to this day defends the Warren Commission, but agrees with many of these conclusions about the deficiencies of the commission. The autopsy photographs should have been examined. Second, 
too much deference was paid to the Kennedy family. Third, many of the commissioners were absent too much of the time to do their work well. Fourth, the FBI was not to be trusted to draw its own conclusions, nor was the CIA. But the FBI could, if properly supervised, help assist with investigations requested by the commission. Fifth, Willens points out that the Warren Commission did not trust either agency and did its, uh, and did its own investigations whenever it could, as with the successful single-bullet conclusion, as it deserves to be called, because we now know it to be a fact, not a theory. I agree with Howard Willens. Sixty years on, the investigations that have followed the Warren Commission have confirmed most of the findings of the Commission. There still remains no smoking gun that a conspiracy exists in the case of the JFK assassination. Does anyone really think that one will ever be found or even exist? Sixty years of testing and reinvestigating have only confirmed the truth of the single-bullet conclusion. Sixty years on, we have learned that the FBI and CIA withheld evidence to preserve its own reputation from its own procedural mistakes, mistakes that showed their own incompetence. These expose not a shred of evidence of conspiracy. This record of success was no accident. The Warren Commission, thanks to its dedicated team of brilliant staff members, also had successes, monumental successes, and these successes, though largely forgotten, were greatly responsible for the fact that most important findings of the Warren Commission remain unimpeached, just as strong now, six decades after the assassination. Next time on Puzzle Pieces, we will look at the strengths of the Warren Commission, strengths that explain this long, unbroken history of success. Thanks for listening. That's it for today's episode of AudiblySpeaking.com. New podcast episodes appear on AudiblySpeaking.com approximately once every two weeks. Please subscribe to Audibly Speaking on iTunes or whatever podcast aggregator you enjoy. Until next time, this is Rick Ryman. Happy listening.